In the previous year, we began to discuss the relationship between the physical and the spiritual, between the body and the neshama, and we tried to discuss what Avram Avinu brought to the world. Now, a few years ago, we began to discuss the machlokas between Yaakov and Esav, and we just touched the surface. So what I'd like to do today is to try to understand that machlokas on a much deeper level. Let's go back to the midrash we began discussing a couple of years ago and try to open it up. The Midrash says that the battle between Yaakov and Esav wasn't just a simple battle between two people, but rather it was a battle over two worlds. That Yaakov wanted the spiritual world, and Esav wanted the physical world. Now the famous question that everyone asks on this Midrash is that this doesn't seem to be a battle. Because if Yaakov wanted the spiritual world, and Esav wanted the physical world, then why didn't Yaakov just take the spiritual world, and Esav take the physical world? For example, if there's vanilla ice cream and chocolate ice cream, and I want chocolate and you want vanilla, there's no argument. I'll take chocolate and you take vanilla. But if there's only vanilla ice cream and I want vanilla and you want vanilla, then we have a machlokas. So what is the real understanding of this machlokas? It doesn't seem to be an actual argument. So the answer we began to discuss a couple of years ago is that it was really a machlokas over both worlds. That Yaakov wanted the physical and the spiritual, and Esav also wanted the physical and the spiritual. But the machlokas was, what is the ikr? What's the focus? Is the focus the spiritual world, and the physical is supposed to enable the spiritual? Or is the focus the physical, and the spiritual is just an animation to enable the physical? So we need to try to understand this on a much deeper level. That's really the first question. What does it mean that there was a machlokas over two worlds? That Yaakov wanted the physical to enable the spiritual, that the spiritual be the ikr, and Esav wanted the physical to be the ikr. What does that really mean? That's the first question. The second question is based on another very interesting midrash. Rashi notes that the Pasuk says that Esav was a trapper, he was a hunter. He would trap animals. But Rashi brings down the famous Midrash that not only would he trap animals, but he also trapped and ensnared Yitzchak. Because he made Yitzchak think that he was a Tamil Chacham. And the Midrash goes on to say, how did Esav make Yitzchak think he was a Tamil Chacham? What did he do? He went over to Yitzchak and said, do we need to bring Miser on salt and straw? Now the question you always need to ask when you read a Midrash is why did it give these examples? Why did Asa specifically ask about salt and straw? What about salt and straw represents what Asa was trying to say? How does that represent how Asa ensnared and tricked Yitzchak? That's the second question. The third question is why did Asa sell the Bechor? And more specifically, the major says that Esav sold the Bechor when he came back from Avraham's Leviah, after Avraham Avinu died, his grandfather. The question is, what does death, what does Avram's Levaya have to do with his son the Bechor? Why specifically did he sell the Bechor after Avram's death? The fourth question is based on the Gemara in Baba Metziah. The Gemara says that both Yaakov and Esav tried to emulate Adam Harishon. However, they approached it in two fundamentally different ways. That Esav wore the clothes, the coat of Adam Harishon, while Yaakov Avinu tried to emulate his inner essence, and it shined through his face. Now the question is as follows. Why did Esav try to wear Adam's external coat? And why did Yaakov try to take his inner essence? And what does it mean that it shone through his face? The final question is based on the Maharal. The Maharal compares Esav to a pig. That Esav represents the concept of a chazer, a pig. Now, the question is, why did the Ma'aral compare Esav to a pig? It's not just an insult, it's a very deep idea. The question is, what is that idea? Why does Esav represent a pig? So to quickly go over the questions, we want to understand the Midrash that Yaakov and Esav were battling over two worlds. We want to understand that Midrash in a deeper way. What does it mean that they were battling over two worlds? The second question is, why did Esav ask Yitzchak about salt and straw? Why did he ask about bringing Maisha specifically on salt and straw? The third question is, why did Esav sell the Bechor, and why specifically did he sell the Bechor after Avram Avinu died? The fourth question is, why did Yaakov and Esav choose different ways to try to emulate Adam HaRishon? That Esav wore his coat, but Yaakov tried to wear his inner essence. And the last question is, why does the Maharal compare Esav to a pig? So those are our basic questions. 
So now let's try to approach this with a very deep principle, a very, very important principle. And that principle is called Ikir and Tafel. That in life, you're going to have something which is essence, which is the Ikir, the main thing, the most important part. And the Tafel is secondary. It's that which enables the Ikir. It's not the most important part. It's there to, so to speak, enable the Ikir, the main thing, to survive and to thrive. So to give you a very simple example, when you have a fruit, let's say an orange, the ichor of the orange would be the actual fruit itself. But the tuffel, that which enables the fruit to survive, is the peel. That would be the outer shell, the surrounding. So the ichor would be the inner essence, the fruit itself, and the tuffel would be the outer shell. So there are many different ways of approaching these terms of ichor and tuffel. One is obviously ichor and tuffel. The other would be light, the inner essence, and vessel, that which surrounds the essence, the light. And another example would be the spiritual as the ichor, as the essence, and the physical as the other shell, the tafel, the klipa, the vessel, the peel. The example we gave so far of the fruit and the peel is a very simple example of ichor and tafel. But there's a much more profound and fundamental paradigm of ichor and tafel. And that is when the tuffel not only surrounds the ichor, like the peel surrounds the fruit, but the tuffel is meant to reflect and express the essence, the ichor. So for example, the body and the neshama. The neshama is the ichor, it's the essence, it's who you are. The body is the ichor. It's true, it surrounds the neshama, you're inside your body. But in a more fundamental perspective, the body is meant to reflect the neshama. That means the body is meant to express the neshama into the world. Now, there are different perspectives on Ikran Tafel. You could say that the Ikr knocks out the Tafel. So, for example, in Halacha, when you have Halachic examples of Ikran Tafel, one approach is that the Ikr knocks out the Tafel. But there's a very, very interesting approach of Ikran Tafel, which is that the Tafel becomes part of the Ikr. The Tafel becomes absorbed within the Ikr. Another example would be the physical world and Hashem. The Nefesh HaChayim explains that the physical world is like the body and Hashem is like the Neshama. That the physical world is meant to express Hashem into the world. Just like the body is meant to express the Neshama. Now the goal for the Tafel is to loyally and perfectly reflect the Ikr, to reflect the essence. So for example, the ideal body perfectly reflects the Neshama. That's why the Ramchal explains in Das Tvunos that Adam the Harishon's original body perfectly reflected his neshama. Not like our bodies. When you look at me, you can't see my neshama. When you look at your friend or your loved ones, you can't see the neshama. All you see is the body. Because the body doesn't show you the neshama. But Adam Harishon's original body actually reflected his neshama. That's why the Midrash says that Adam Harishon's original body was made out of or, light, Aleph Rav Reish, light. Because when you looked at Adam, you saw his neshama. I'll give you a mashal. When you look at a light bulb, you don't see the light bulb. You see it just a luminescent light flowing out. If you look very closely, you can just make out the light bulb. Just make out the outer surroundings. But the purpose of the light bulb is to reflect and express the light within. So the purpose of, the, of Adam Rishon's original body was to loyally express the neshama. The neshama completely dominated the body, and the body perfectly reflected him. So when you looked at Adam, you saw him. Why do you think Adam Rishon didn't need to wear clothing? Because he didn't have a physical body. His body perfectly reflected his neshama. That's why the Ramban explains that before Adam Rishon ate from the Eitz Adas, he was immortal. He never would have died. Why? Because his body was spiritual. It wasn't physical, it didn't wear out, it didn't um, get old. Because his original body was a spiritual body. It perfectly reflected his neshama. And the Ramchal explains that the world was the same way. Nowadays, you look at the physical world, you don't see spirituality. You look at the physical world, you don't see Hashem. But the original physical world perfectly reflected the spiritual world. When you looked at a thing, you saw its source. You saw its spiritual essence, you saw Hashem. Nowadays, it's not true because after Adam sinned, the entire world became physical as well. Adam Arishan's body became very physical, that's why he needed to wear clothes. And the whole physical world was brought down to this level, that it became very physical. And the Ramachal explained that the connection between the body and the neshama and the spiritual world and the physical world are very connected. 
So when Adam Rishon brought down his body to a very physical body, he also brought down the entire world to be a very physical world. Now, while our goal is to try to get back to that original state of Adam Harishon, like we explained in the very first year, that there's always a, a paradigm and perfect mashal that's given to us, and then it's taken away, and we have to recreate it ourselves. So our goal is to really get back to that original state of Adam Harishon. But throughout human history, only a few people have actually fully uplifted their body, they have fully reflected their neshama. So, for example, the Pesukim say that when Moshe Rabbeinu came back down from Harsinai, his face glowed. His face actually was lit up, was illuminescent. It glowed with light. And he actually had to wear a mask. And the Ramchal explains that it's because he reattained this perfection of the body. That the body actually reflected the Neshama. And Chanoch and Eliyahu also so much uplifted their bodies that they actually went straight up to Gan Eden. The Psukim say that Chanoch walked straight up to Shemayim, and it says that Eliyahu was scooped up by a fiery chariot and was brought straight up to Shemayim. And the Ramchal explains that their bodies reflected their neshamas, that their bodies themselves could go into the spiritual world, because they so uplifted and perfected their physical bodies that it now reflected their neshama. Now it's true that when it comes to the rest of us, our bodies do not reflect our neshamas. When I look at you, I don't see spirituality. I don't see a neshama. All I see is a face, a physical body. So how are we supposed to use our bodies to reflect our neshamas? Not by the body itself looking like the neshama, but rather how we express ourselves. We express the neshama through the body. So for example, for the words I say to reflect my perfection, for the words I say to reflect higher thoughts, the things that you speak about reflect who you are. And then my actions also to reflect my neshama that my actions to be uplifted, that I live a life of Torah, a life of mitzvos, a life of growth. So what's the ideal? What's the goal? The goal is for the tafel, the body, the physical, to fully and perfectly and loyally reflect the essence, the neshama, the inner essence. But what's evil? What's the corruption of that goal? When the vessel projects itself. When the physical and the tuffle does not reflect the ikr, does not reflect the neshama, does not reflect the essence. When the physical cuts itself off from anything higher, from anything spiritual, from anything of essence. When the physical doesn't reflect anything higher than itself. So I'll give you a couple of examples of when the physical doesn't reflect the inner essence. One of the most important examples of this is lying. When I speak to you, what you expect to get is what was inside of my mind. You're expecting my words to reflect me. Then when I tell you something, it's reflecting the truth that I have inside my head. But when I lie to you, I'm cutting off that process. The words I'm saying is not a reflection of me. It's not a reflection of what I know. Instead, I'm creating something new that the words simply start from my mouth. They don't start with it from within my mind, from where the truth is, but rather I'm creating something false. And now what you think is me, the words that I'm telling you that you now perceive as being what I really am, what I really think, what I really know, instead there's been a corruption. That the words I'm telling you don't reflect anything of truth. They do not reflect anything higher. The second example is when you don't live a spiritual life. That the life you're living, the physical expression you're living in the world, is not an expression of who you really are. It's not a reflection of your neshama. When the body doesn't reflect the neshama. When you live a life of physical without any higher purpose. So for example, when you eat and sleep for a higher purpose, those physical actions have a higher source. The Rambam says that when you eat and sleep to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they become a mitzvah. The Ramchal says that when you eat and sleep to serve Hashem, anything physical, anything mundane that you do to help you serve Hashem becomes a spiritual act. But when the physical acts become just physical acts, it ends in itself. I eat because I want to eat. I sleep because I want to sleep. Then those acts become just physical acts without any higher reflection. They're not sourced from anything more. And they're just that. A physical surface without any deeper spiritual essence inside. So just to give you a couple mashalim, the purpose of a vessel is to reflect the essence. A terrible vessel is one which projects itself. So the purpose of a computer screen, for example, the purpose of the computer screen is to reflect the image behind the screen. You want to see the words or the image or whatever you want to access behind the computer screen. 
But what about a screen that projects itself? So instead of seeing what you're working on behind the screen, you just see the screen. That would be a terrible screen. Or imagine a projector. You're trying to show a film on the wall. And you're projecting an image, but instead of seeing the image, the projector tries to project itself. So instead of projecting what it's supposed to be projecting, what it's supposed to be reflecting, it projects itself. That ego, that assertion of self in the way of something higher, that's evil. That's corrupting that flow, that process. So for example, we talked about the body not reflecting the neshama. But we need to deepen this perspective a little bit. Because you aren't perfect. So your body reflecting you doesn't mean your body's going to reflect perfection because you, the neshama, aren't yet perfect. So what do we mean for the body to reflect the neshama? So we need to take this a step further. There are really three levels. Hashem, then the neshama, then the body. The neshama needs to reflect Hashem, and the body needs to reflect that neshama, which reflects Hashem. So the body reflects Hashem through the neshama reflecting Hashem as well. It's really a three-step process. So remember in the first year we discussed the famous Gemara Nida, the Aflam and that says when the fetus is in the womb, it learns Kola Torah Kula. It has access to the entire spiritual world. It sees from the one end of the universe to the other. And the mouth teaches him Kola Torah Kula. But when you're born, the mouth hits you on the mouth and you forget everything. Why? As we explained so importantly, because your job in the world is to build it yourself. So now we need to Connect these ideas. You are a reflection of Hashem. You are an all-knowing, all-kind, all-giving, all-powerful, self-controlled being. But when you're born, you lose access to all of that. So your job in life is for your inner world, your neshama, your mind, you, to reflect Hashem, to regain access to that truth, to redevelop yourself, that your inner self becomes a reflection of Hashem, and then to express that through your body. So the neshama then reflects Hashem, and the body reflects the neshama, which also now reflects Hashem. And by doing that, you re-become the person that you really are. You re-attain the perfection you once had in the womb, but now it's yours, now you built it yourself. According to this, there are really two ways of living a life of shakar. One is for you not to re-attain access to the higher truth, to not re-attain access to the higher consciousness, to not redevelop your mind, not to redevelop your inner self. As opposed to becoming the inner person that you're supposed to be, you just live a life of ignorance. That's the first level of shakar. But the second and much more difficult level of shakar is when you know the truth, you know what you're supposed to do, but you're not able to live it. So, for example, a person can know smoking is terrible, but he'll still do it. A person can be on a diet and know that he shouldn't eat that piece of chocolate cake. And know that that piece of chocolate cake is not going to taste good. Because even when he's eating it, he's going to hate himself. He's going to say, oh my gosh, I, I did it again. I messed up again. And yet you can still do it. A person can know that it's an Avera, can know what's wrong, can tell himself, oh my gosh, this is dumb, I shouldn't do this, it's foolish. And yet still do it. How? This is a very, very fundamental topic which we need to spend at least a full shear on later on in the course. But the fundamental principle is as follows. A person does not need to connect intellect to the way he lives. You can live in illusion. You can know something intellectually and yet ignore it and give in to your lower drives. The purpose of life is to attain the truth, but to live the truth. To access the wisdom of reality, but then to make it the way that you actually experience and live life. To bring the intellect into the real. To connect the head, the intellect, the mind, to the body, the way you live life. Not to have things being theoretical, and yeah, you should do that, but not doing it. Rather, attaining access to the truth, and then living it, expressing it, becoming it. So now let's go back to our original principle. The goal is for the physical to loyally and perfectly reflect this virtual. For the body to be a loyal and perfect reflection of the neshama. That's what Yaakov represents. Using the physical perfectly to reflect this virtual. Remember the shear we gave before, shear number six, how you always have a three-step process. There's always the original root, chesed, outflow. The second step is din, constriction, limiting that outflow. And finally, teferis is the perfect balance. So the examples we gave was rain. If you have too much rain, the outflow, you'll have a mabul, you have a flood. If you have too little, 
you'll have a fanon. But the key is to have that ideal, perfect balance. And that is Tiferes. That's that perfect balance. So that's how we explained Avraham was that original outflow. Yitzchak is the control, the restriction, the constriction of that original outflow. And Yaakov is that perfect balance, that Tiferes. And it's not that Avraham and Yitzchak aren't as good as Yaakov. It's that Avraham represents that original outflow. Yitzchak makes that real. He limits it. And Yaakov represents the perfect balance of both of those two. And that's the ideal here, is that Avram brought the principle of using the physical to reflect the spiritual. Remember last year we said that Avram introduced that principle to reality, introduced that principle to the world. And Yitzchak limited that principle, and Yaakov represents that perfect balance, making it the ideal perfect balance that the physical perfectly and loyally reflects the spiritual. But what does Esav represent? What does Esav represent? Turning the tafel turning the physical, the vessel, the kli, into the ikr. Disconnecting the physical from anything higher. Where you look at the body, and you don't see a neshama. All you see is the surface. All you see is the physical. There's nothing deeper, there's nothing more. When you look at the physical world, you don't see it as being a reflection of the spiritual world. The physical world is disconnected from the spiritual world. Don't tell me how the physical world is full of meaning and purpose. No, it's completely disconnected from meaning and purpose. Disconnected from a spiritual reality. The physical world is disconnected from Hashem. Hashem has nothing to do with this world. Does he exist? Maybe. It doesn't matter. But the physical world, completely meaningless. Completely independent of any higher source. The physical body, not connected to a higher neshama. The physical world, not connected to a higher source. Not connected to Hashem. And that's why Esav represents an empty vessel, an empty kli, an empty exterior that doesn't contain anything higher, that doesn't have any inner essence, and definitely doesn't reflect any higher essence. So now we can understand the Gemara Baba Messiah that says that both Yaakov and Esav tried to emulate Adam Arishon, but they tried to do so in very different ways. Esav wore Adam's coat while Yaakov tried to emulate his inner essence. Why? Because Esau only cares about the surface, the physical, the exterior. He wants to look like Adam Harishan. He doesn't care what his inside is. He doesn't care if he actually reflects Adam Harishan's essence. All he wants is to look externally like Adam Harishan. Because all he cares about is the surface. Yaakov wants to represent Adam's essence. Because the ikra for Esav is the exterior, but the ikra for Yaakov is the interior, the essence, the neshama. And when Yaakov reflects Adam's essence, what happens? As we explained in the very beginning, in one of the questions, what does the Gemara say? It reflects and shines through his face. Why? Because the physical body now reflects the neshama. Esav, the physical, reflects nothing higher. It's just an exterior without anything inside. But for Yaakov, the vessel reflects the inner essence. And that's why the Maharal explains that Esav is like a pig. Because there are two osios, two signs for kashas. One os for an animal to be kosher is to have split hooves. That's the exterior os, the exterior sign to be kosher. But the interior os to be kosher is to chew your cud. So for example, a cow both has split hooves and chews its cud. But the pig is an animal that only has an external sign of kashras, but not an internal sign of kashras. So the pig looks kosher. Its surface, its exterior, its physical body looks kosher. And when you look at it, you say, oh, maybe, maybe the pig's kosher, looks kosher. But internally, its essence, no, that's not kosher. And the same is with Esau, that his outside makes you think that he's kosher. He puts on a show. He goes over to Esau and asks halacha questions. Oh, the salt and straw, do you have to bring miser for them? But it's all a show because it's just a surface act. It doesn't reflect anything higher. The physical, the surface, the vessel, the tafel, doesn't reflect the essence, doesn't reflect the neshama, doesn't reflect the spiritual. And that's why Esau is a pig. That's why Esau tried to wear Adam's coat. So now let's try to understand why Asa specifically mentioned salt and straw. What is it about salt and straw that represents Asa? So let's start by trying to understand the nature of salt. The most simple understanding of salt is that it's a preservative. You use salt to preserve meats, you use salt to preserve things. That's why the Ramban famously says that the reason why we salt carbonos, we use salt for the sacrifices for carbonos, is because we're trying to preserve our relationship with Hashem. 
but there's a much deeper understanding of salt. Salt brings out the potential of that which rests within. For example, if you know anyone who's a real cook or who knows how to cook, then they'll tell you that the purpose of salt is not for you to taste the salt, but the purpose of salt is to bring out the flavor of the food. So that's the big difference between a dip and salt. When you put ketchup onto anything, it tastes like ketchup. If you put mustard onto anything, it tastes like mustard. But the purpose of salt is not for you to taste the salt. When you put salt on something, it shouldn't taste like salt. But salt should rather bring out, to express, to surface, the potential flavor of the food that rests within. And that's why when it comes to salt, you have to have this perfect balance. Because if you put too much salt in, you're going to taste the salt. That's not good. If you put too little salt in, then you're not going to bring out the flavor. You need to have that perfect balance. There's a fascinating Gemara that beautifully expresses this deep idea. The Gemara in Ksubus, the Afsamach Zayin says over the following story. Marokva used to give tzedakah to a certain ani, but he used to drop the money under the door and run away so that the ani wouldn't know who's giving him tzedakah, so he wouldn't be embarrassed. But the ani wanted to know who was giving him tzedakah, so one day the ani decided to hide behind the door and find out who's been giving him tzedakah all this time. So that day happened to be that Marokva was walking with his wife. And as they walked by, Marokva dropped the money under the door. And as he dropped the money, the door opened, and the guy started chasing them to try to find out who had given him the money. So Marokva and his wife are running, and they're trying to run away from this honey, and they find a baker shop. So they run into the baker shop, and they run right into the oven. And the oven was on. And Marokva's feet started to burn up because he was in this boiling hot oven. And he turned to the right and he realized that his wife's feet were not burning. There was a nace, a miracle had occurred, and his wife's feet were not burning at all. So he was very embarrassed. Why did his wife get the miracle and he didn't? But his wife said, come step on my feet and you'll be fine. So Marukva stepped on his wife's feet and Baruch Hashem, everything was fine. Marukva's wife saw that Marukva was very depressed, very upset that a nace had occurred to him but had occurred to his wife. So Miracle's wife said, don't worry. The reason why the miracle occurred to me is because you only give Ani'im money, but I give them food. Now Rashi says that this means bread and salt. And the question is, what does it mean that I give bread and salt and you only give money and therefore I deserve the miracle? Why is it better to give bread and salt than it is to give money? Why should it make any difference? So before we try to understand this idea, we need to backtrack and go over the fourth shear. Remember in the fourth shear, we said that there are two very important concepts in life. There's potential and actualizing that potential to actual. So for example, if I tell you, name me any number, I'm going to give you that amount of money. Any number! Your mind starts rolling. Uh, and until you tell me a number, it's just potential, it's nothing. But once you tell me a number, two things happen. Let's say you tell me 100 million. Two things happen. One is you get that exact amount. That's the greatness. But the sadness is not one penny more. What about 200 million? What about 500 million? What about a billion? The thing is that potential could always be something else. But actual represents sacrificing potential making it real. And the goal of life is to sacrifice the infinite potential in order to make something real. You can't become everything. You can't learn everything. You can't become the best at everything. But you can become something. You can become the best you. And that requires sacrificing potential, making it real. And we discussed that in great depth in the fourth year. But we established that male represents potential and female represents actualizing potential. So you can see it even in the male body. The male produces millions and billions of seed at a time. And he constantly produces seed. However, the female has a specific amount of eggs from the time she's born, and she only gives off one egg per month. Which means that she takes those millions and billions of potential seed, and she limits it to one. But she makes it real. And she develops and concretizes it within her womb. The male is just that flash and spark of potential. But the female takes that potential and makes it real. Spends time developing and nurturing it. And bringing the potential into actual. So male represents potential. Theoretical possibility. But female represents taking that potential and bringing it into the real. Making it actual. And we develop this in great depth in the fourth year.
now that we have reintroduced that very fundamental principle, let's go back to this Gemara. The Gemara says that the reason why Marukfu's wife was Zoha to get this miracle was because she gave bread and salt, while Marukva just gave money. Now, Marukva is a male, and he gave money, because money is just potential. You can't use money to survive. Money has no inherent value. You can't live off money. You can't eat money. So money is just potential. It can be used to gain access to food. However, Marukva's wife didn't give potential. She's a female. She gave something real, something that the Ani could actually use to eat. So she gave actual food. And that's why she got a great zuchos. So that's a simple understanding of the Gemara. But there's a much deeper understanding of the Gemara. Which is that it's true, Marukva gave potential, gave money. He's a male, he gave money. But Marukva's wife didn't just give food. What food did she give? Number one, she gave bread, which represents the female. Bread is not grain, it's not potential, it's a finished product. It's that which has been developed and harnessed, and the potential of the wheat, the potential of the grain, has been actualized into bread. But to take a step further, and this is why I brought this Gemara down, what was the second food that she gave? Salt. Because salt brings out the flavor of the food. That is the very essence of female, to bring out the potential of something. So Marukva's wife gave bread and salt. Marukva just gave money, potential, but Marukva's wife gave food that represents maximizing and actualizing the potential. Now, I'm going to just put another idea out there, and I'm not going to, this will be homework, this is just for you to think about. Why did the miracle specifically happen to Marukvo's wife's feet? Now, you could say simply, it's because they were standing on the floor, so of course it's going to happen to her feet. Practically, that's what needed to be saved. But there's a much deeper answer, and that's the lowest part of the human body is the feet. And if male represents potential, theoretical, the, that which is just conceptual and thought, and female represents actualizing that potential and bringing it down from the higher, bringing it down from the theoretical into the actual, into the lower, then you can think about and try to start connecting why specifically the miracle happened to Marukva's wife's feet. So that's just something to think about. It's obviously based on a very deep topic and how we understand human body, but we're not ready to really go into that. So that's just for you to think about. And now that we understand that salt represents actualizing, drawing out the potential, you can understand why we also salt carbonos, because the salt brings out the blood from the carbonos, which you need to do before you bring the carbon. So salt represents actualizing potential, bringing it out. But what's an inappropriate use of salt? When the salt asserts itself, ego, when it gets in the way, instead of bringing out the potential and the flavor of the food, you taste the salt itself. The salt asserts itself. The tuffel, the physical, doesn't reflect the spiritual. The tuffel, the salt, doesn't bring out the potential. Instead, it reflects and asserts itself. And that's ego. That's the problem. So if you taste the salt, then it's a failure. But if the salt brings out the potential and the taste of the food, then it's successful. So what's a great example of this? Lot's wife. Why did Lot's wife turn into a pillar of salt? Out of all things, why a pillar of salt? So first of all, it's an important question to ask. Did Lot deserve to be saved? So there's a machloka. So according to Rashi, Lot himself did deserve to be saved. But according to many Rishonim, Lot himself did deserve to be saved. He was rather saved because of the zechusim of Avram, not his own zechusim. But even if Lot did deserve to be saved, we don't know if that means his wife deserved to be saved. So we don't know if Lot's wife actually deserved to be saved from Sodom. Now the question is, why weren't they supposed to look back? Remember, the Malach said, don't look back. Lot's wife looked back, and that's why she turned into a pillar of salt. The question is, why weren't they supposed to look back in the first place? So the first answer could be ego. That if you don't deserve to be saved... Everyone else is dying and you're being saved and you don't even deserve to be saved. For you to look back at them dying represents you saying, look at me, I'm alive, I should be alive, but you, you're going to die. And that's inappropriate. But what if they did deserve to be saved? What if Lot actually did deserve to be saved? And to take a step further, what if even Lot's wife did deserve to be saved? you can still say that it's inappropriate. Because when you're being saved and other people are dying, for you to project your own existence and to look at them while they're being killed is so inappropriate. It's asserting ego. It's asserting yourself. You're being saved, and instead of appreciating your existence, you're trying to assert it inappropriately. 
What was the punishment? Mida Kanaga Mida. What was Lot's wife said? Ego, asserting herself. So what happened? She turned into a pillar of salt. Because what's the problem of salt? Ego, asserting yourself. You should never taste the salt. When the salt asserts itself and asserts ego, that's the problem. So Mida Kanaga Mida, she turned into a pillar of salt. So now we can understand the principle of salt. The principle of salt is that which is tough felt, that which brings out the ichor, which brings out the essence. You're not supposed to taste the salt itself. The salt isn't supposed to be the ichor. The salt is supposed to be tough felt, that which enables and expresses and brings out the potential of the food. What about straw? Straw is also tough felt. Straw is the case, the, the external clay and vessel of wheat. But the straw is there to protect the wheat. The straw isn't the ichor, but rather it's a vessel. It's the physical, it's the surface, the external. So now we can understand Asaph's question. What was Asaph asking? Asaph was asking, should we bring Meister on the tuffel? On salt, which is tuffel, which is supposed to express and bring out the potential of something else. On straw, which is tuffel to the wheat. So should we bring Meister on tuffel? But how was this trying to trick Yitzchak? The answer is as follows. Yitzchak thought Esau was saying something extraordinary. That we shouldn't only bring Meister on the Iker, but we should even bring Meister on the Tafel. That the Tafel becomes part of the Iker. That the Tafel uplifts the Iker. When the body reflects in the Shama, the body becomes uplifted. It becomes spiritual itself. So when the Tafel is used properly, it can become Iker. So Yitzchak thought Esav was amazing. He thought he was extraordinarily spiritual. Seeing that not only should the Iker, should the Kadosh be uplifted, but even the Tafel, even the physical, because it's used to reflect the spiritual. And that's why Yitzchak wanted to give Esav the Bracha. What does it mean that Yitzchak wanted to give Esav the Bracha? The misconception is that Yitzchak actually wanted to give Esau the bracha. But if you read the Pesukim closely, there were always going to be two brachos. Because the bracha that Yaakov stole was one bracha, but Yitzchak gave Yaakov another bracha later. So the answer is as follows. The bracha Yaakov got later on, the bracha he was always going to get, was the spiritual bracha. But the bracha that Yaakov stole was the physical bracha. The ideal relationship would have been that Yaakov would bring in the spiritual, would perfect the spiritual, and Yitzchak would create a perfect vessel, a perfect physical world, to reflect that spiritual. Yaakov would be the spiritual, Esav would be the physical. And Yitzchak thought that Esav would uplift the physical world, would make it a perfect vessel to reflect the spiritual that Yaakov would perfect. However, that's not what Esav did. Esav tried to cut off the spiritual from the physical. While Yitzchak thought that Esav was uplifting the physical, saying you should even bring a Meiser on the Tafel, Esav was tricking Yitzchak because he was really saying, you should only bring Meiser on the Tafel. You should only focus on the Tafel, the salt and the straw. Not the ichor, not the food that the salt is supposed to bring out the flavor of. Not the wheat within the straw. But only the Tafel itself. The physical shouldn't reflect anything higher. Of course we're going to focus on the body, but not because we're reflecting the neshama, but because we're going to focus on the body as an end in itself. The body is not going to reflect anything higher. And that was the trick. But Yaakov saw through this. Yaakov realized this. And therefore Yaakov realized that not only does he have to take on the spiritual tafkid of life, but he has to also take on the physical tafkid. That he has to not only perfect the spiritual, but also create a physical kli, a physical vessel, the tafel, which reflects the neshama. And that's why Yaakov reflects that perfect balance of the physical reflecting the neshama. Now we can also understand why the Navi compares Esav to straw. The Pasuk in Ovadia, in the first parak, in Pasuk Yudchah, says, V'haya beis Yaakov eish, u'beis Yosef l'hava, u'beis Esav l'kash. That the house of Yaakov will be fire, the house of Yosef is a flame, the ember, and the house of Esav is the straw. Why? Because at the end of time, Klai Yisrael is going to completely overcome Esav. The spiritual will overcome the physical which doesn't have any higher root. The fire will incinerate the straw. That perfect combination of the physical and the spiritual will overcome the ace of, the physical which disconnects itself from anything spiritual, from anything higher.
there's a beautiful madrash which really encompasses this very idea. The midrash says that there was a bechami, a seller of coals, who was in the marketplace. And what they used to do is they used to keep coals burning, and people would come and buy them in order to warm their homes. But the coals used to actually be on fire in the marketplace. But one day, a straw seller came and started filling up the entire marketplace with straw. And pretty soon there was almost no room to move. The entire place was filled with straw. And the coal seller started to get nervous. There was barely any room for his coals. He was thinking, what's going to be? Pretty soon he's going to overcome my entire shop. He's going to overcome all of my coals. But then a wise man came over to him and said, Don't worry. When his straw gets too close to your fire, one spark from your coals will burn down all of his straw. What's the principle? That asav represents straw, something which is only physical, something which is only powerful in quantity, something which is a physical container that doesn't have any inner content. The straw is just a physical container. Its only value is when you have it in large quantities. You can't sell a piece of straw. You have to sell millions of pieces of straw. At the end of time, the nations of the world are going to be millions, billions. Kaleistral is going to be tiny. Look at Kaleistral nowadays. How many do we have in numbers? And look at the nations of the world. How many do they have in numbers? So in quantity, they will completely overwhelm us. But Yaakov represents fire, whose value is in quality. Because no matter how little there is, fire spreads. One spark can ignite an entire world of straw. One spark of fire can engulf and overcome an entire world of physical. Because when the physical is not connected to the spiritual, it's empty. And it becomes burned and consumed and incinerated by fire. But fire represents the perfect combination and relationship between the physical and the spiritual. Think about a fire. A fire is this dancing spiritual flame which uses a physical medium. The flame feeds off of the wick. The neshama feeds off of the body. The neshama uses the body to express itself. The fire uses the wick, uses the wood, uses the physical medium to express its flame. That's why Yaakov represents the flame, the fire, while Esav represents straw, an empty physical vessel without any inner content. And now we can understand the famous machlokas between Yaakov and Esav. When Yaakov comes back from the house of Lavan, he tries to send Esav gifts to appease him so Esav won't get angry. But what does Esav say when he receives Yaakov's gifts? Yeshli Rav. I have a lot. Why? Because he looked around him at the quantity of his things. He said, yeah, I have a lot of things. Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. I don't need more. I don't need your gifts, Yaakov. I have a lot. What did Yaakov say to Esav? Yeshli Ko. I have everything. Because when you define your worth and value based on your things, it's based on quantity, based on how much you have. But when you define yourself as a neshama who uses a body, when you define yourself as a spiritual being, you're connecting yourself to Hashem. You're connecting yourself to the infinite. I don't have things. I don't have a lot. I have everything. Because he's living in a dimension beyond the physical. He li he's living in a spiritual world that transcends the limitations of numbers and quantity. And there's a much deeper share which we're going to give in a couple months on the idea of coal. We're not there yet. But this phrase of Yaakov, Yeshli Kol, is an extremely deep concept. But it represents a connection to that which transcends just a physical world with things. But rather a transcendent connection to a spiritual reality. But if we are the fire, if we are the fire, then what's the key? We have to keep the fire burning. We have to make sure that there are embers that are still ignited, still engulfed with flames. And we have to make sure that our passion and motivation in life to fulfill our purpose and reflect Hashem stays true and stays on fire. Now it's important to realize that almost all of Western culture is based off externality. It's based off outer expression. An extreme focus on externality not reflecting anything higher. So, for example, when it comes to beauty, 
Much of the Western world focuses on physical beauty, on the external surface, nothing more. If you have a symmetrical face and you're not overweight, then you're beautiful. It's all about the physical, external look, the body itself. But the real beauty, real beauty, is when the physical surface, the physical medium, the physical body reflects deep inner beauty, when the body reflects the neshama. So, for example, who was the most beautiful woman in Tanakh? One of the most beautiful women in Tanakh was Sara Imenu. Sara, how do we know? How do we know she was physically beautiful? Because she, when she went down to Mitzrayim, they thought she was so beautiful, they wanted to give her to Paro, to the Melech, to the king. Now, Sara was clearly spiritually beautiful, but her body was physically beautiful. Yet, Avram Avinu never even knew she was beautiful until Mitzrayim. The Midrash says, it's a very famous Midrash, says that when Avram was going down to Mitzrayim, only then did he begin to realize how physically beautiful Sarah was. Now the simple and very childish way of approaching this Midrash is that Avram never saw Sarah. So Sarah was very tznua, and therefore Avram never saw what she looked like. And only when he was about to go down to Mitzrayim did he begin to see what Sarah looked like. But the deeper understanding of this madras is as follows. Of course Avram saw Sarah. Of course Avram knew Sarah was beautiful. But what beauty did Avram see? Avram saw a much deeper beauty. Not some fake beauty like you're a nice person. But Avram saw a much deeper inner beauty reflected through Sarah's body. Avram saw Sarah's neshama. He, he saw inner beauty reflected through outer beauty. But when he was going down to Mitzrayim, he started to realize that, wait a second, she also has physical beauty. And the Mitzrayim don't see the deeper inner beauty. They only see the outer physical beauty. Mitzrayim, we don't have time to go into this now. When we talk about Pesach, we can go into this in much more depth. But Mitzrayim is the lowest, most sensual nation. Ervas Haaretz, Meitzaryam. We don't have time to really develop these ideas. But Mitzrayim is a very low physical nation. So Avram had to try to see from their perspective. But Sarah Imenu reflects real beauty when the physical beauty is a reflection of deep inner spiritual beauty. It's really so beautiful. Rashi brings down in Parshas Noach, at the end of Parshas Noach, when we're introduced to Sarah Imenu, it brings down that Sarah Imenu had another name, Iska. But you know what the word Iska means? It means transparent, to see through. Because Sari Imenu's beauty was that you can see through her, through the physical. The physical was transparent. It was a reflection of her inner essence. Iska, the Lashon, the, the Shorash of Iska, is what? Sukkah. Schach. Schach. You have to see through the schach. You have to see the stars. Sukkah, the acre of Sukkah is schach. That's why the same root of Sukkah is schach. Iska, to see through. Because real beauty is when obviously the physical beauty is not bad, but it needs to reflect something higher. When you have physical beauty that doesn't reflect inner beauty, that's ugly. That's ugly. I'll tell you guys a quick story. One of the Rebbeim that I know is very into Kiruv. So one Friday, he invited a beautiful girl. She was actually a model. He invited her for the Friday night meal. And he forgot that he invited her, and he also invited a bunch of his Talmidim, who were about her age, to the Friday night meal. So it comes Friday night meal and he's stuck. He's like, you know, really, really concerned. He's very scared what's going to happen. Because his Talmudim get there Friday night and there are these single teenage boys. Let's say they were about 18 or 19 years old. And there's this beautiful, gorgeous model who's there Friday night. And all the guys are just, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves. There's this beautiful woman there. And they're all sitting there at the table and they're waiting, you know, what's going to happen. And... The meal begins, and someone asks her a question, and from the moment she opened her mouth, everyone at the table, everyone at the table became so unattracted to her, because what came out of her mouth was disgusting. It was just this egotistical, selfish, undeveloped personality. And even though she was physically beautiful, everyone at the table thought she was ugly. Because when physical beauty doesn't reflect inner beauty, it's ugly. And the same thing you can have someone who's physically ugly, who is beautiful. There's a midrash where the Gemara actually says that Esther was green. Green! Now we're not going to go into the whole topic of beauty now, because this really requires a whole shear. But real beauty is when the inner essence is revealed outwards.
It is true that the ideal is for a physically beautiful body to reflect an innerly beautiful being, but real beauty is always based on the inner. And therefore, nowadays, it might be much more helpful to be ugly because when people are physically beautiful, they don't need to work on their inner selves to get recognized by other people. People just like them and think they're so great just because of their looks. But when you don't have outer looks, you need to build inner content in order to get this self-worth. Now, the ideal is that you have both. But it might actually be more helpful nowadays to really not have outer looks because then you'll really focus on what's really important, which is the inner, the inside. But that's not saying physical looks are bad. That's not saying people who are good looking have to be, you know, so selfish and egotistical and not build inner content. It's simply saying that real beauty is when the outer vessel is reflecting something higher inside. And therefore, the Western culture is not reflecting real beauty. And we don't have time to develop this now, but we started to mention this a couple of years ago, that real depth of wisdom is when physical wisdom, the wisdom of science, medicine, philosophy, psychology, mathematics, is a reflection of spiritual wisdom. The problem with the Western culture is that physical wisdom is that. It's only wisdom of the physical world. There's nothing that transcends. The Ramban says the problem with the Greeks is that they were brilliant, but only that which they could understand with their rational intellectual minds. Only that which they can, so to speak, measure in a scientific lab. But anything which transcends Torah, that's, that's out of the question. That's out of the picture. So real wisdom is when you are able to source the physical wisdom back to its real spiritual root, back to the Torah. Back to deeper wisdom. That's what the Ramchal explains in the introduction of Derech Hashem, that when you understand spiritual wisdom, you can by definition understand all the physical phenomena, all physical wisdom, because it's an expression of, of spiritual wisdom. Physical wisdom, the world of science and medicine, it's all an expression of spiritual wisdom. And that's the real idea of Torah Mada, that Torah is your root, your source, and you see the entire world of Mada through the lens of Torah. And therefore, you need to be sourcing the physical wisdom back to the spiritual source. And that's the big problem when it comes to Asav, is the physical doesn't reflect the spiritual source. So now that we've understood Asav, it's just very important to try to understand Amalek. Amalek is the grandson of Asav. He is the most potent expression of this philosophy. Asav's son was Aliphaz, and Aliphaz's son was Amalek. Amalek represents disconnecting the physical from the spiritual. The Maharal explains in Gevur Hashem, in the third introduction, that Amalek's claim is that the physical world is disconnected from Hashem. It's disconnected from a spiritual world. That's why the Gemara Brachos, that Nun Chesam and Aleph, says that what is the Melchama against Amalek? Lecha Hashem Amalekha, Zu Melchamas Amalek. That Amalek tries to claim that Hashem isn't a Melech. That what does it mean to be a Melech? This is a very deep Machshavi principle. We really have to give a whole shir on this. But the very introductory idea of a melech is that Hashem is connected to the physical world. That everything that happens in the physical world is an expression of Hashem. Remember we discussed a couple shirim ago the idea of the Vilna Gon. That melech represents moach, lev, and kaved. That from the brain, from the head, to the heart, to the kaveh, to the liver, that from the top down there's an expression and a connection. That from the spiritual world, from the source, from Hashem, till the physical world, there's a connection. And that everything that happens in the physical world is because of the spiritual world, because of what Hashem wants, because of the Ratzon Hashem. And what Amalek claims is that no, the physical world is disconnected from Hashem, disconnected from the spiritual world, and that Hashem has nothing to do with this world, disconnects the higher from the lower. And now you can understand why Amalek attacked right before Ma'an Torah. Why did Amalek attack right before Ma'an Torah? Because when we receive the Torah, we connect it to Hashem, we connect it to the spiritual and the higher world. We received a higher purpose, a spiritual purpose. And that is exactly what Amalek stands against. There is no higher purpose. There is no spiritual connection to the physical world. Hashem is not connected to the spiritual world. So therefore Amalek tried to attack right before that transcendent connection. And the Pasuk, what does the Pasuk say? The Pasuk says, Asher karcha baderech. Now what does it mean, Asher karcha baderech? So Rashi gives three explanations that what it means that Amalek met us on the way. The first explanation is kara, 
happenstance, that Asher Karcha Baderach, they happened to meet you on the way to Mount they happened to attack you, that everything in the world is random. Happenstance, there is no meaning and purpose. Hashem is not guiding the world. Hashem is not connected to the world. There's no spiritual purpose to life. Everything in the world is kara, happenstance. But the second understanding of karcha baderach, as Rashi explains, is keri. Keri represents spiritual tumah. Specifically when it comes to marital intimacy, the marital tumah. Why? Because Amalek represents destroying the transcendence of marriage. Saying that when it comes to marriage, human beings are just animals. Tashmit intimacy, is just an animalistic act. There is no Kedusha to it. Of course, as Jews, we believe that there's a mitzvah of Kedusha, a mitzvah of Nusuin, and a mitzvah of Puravu. It's the most holy act. The Ramban explains that the connection, the paradigm, of a man and wife is connected to the relationship between Klai Yishon and Hashem, between you and Hashem. It's the teacher, the idea of marrying Hashem. But Amalek says there is no Kedusha. You're just a physical being, it's just a physical act. There is no, it's just a very lowly, physical, animalistic act because there's nothing higher. And if you want to just take this a step further and just see the beauty of this idea, what is the source of Amalek? How was Amalek born? Through a pilegesh, a concubine. The Pasuk says that Alifa has married a concubine. What's a concubine? A purely physical relationship. No spiritual connection, no deeper purpose of marriage, just physical intimacy, and that's it. So the very root of Amalek's creation was a completely animalistic act, not part of a higher purposeful marriage. And the last step, the last meaning of karcha baderach, as Rashi explains, is karach, to cool, to cool the flame, as Rashi explains. The Midrash says that when the miracles, when the Nisim were occurring in Kriyas Yamsuf, and all the machos that happened in Mitzrayim, it didn't just happen there, it happened all over the world. And all the people in the entire world were saying, what's happening? They went to the Navi of the nations, they went to Bilam, and they said, is Hashem destroying the world? And Bilam said, no, Hashem owes the Amo Yitain. Hashem is giving the Torah to Chal Yisrael. And they said, we're going to go. So the entire world was flocking towards our Sinai, was going to receive the Torah. And the Ramchal explains in Derech Hashem that had they gone, in a moment they could have all joined. That just like that, they could have all joined Chal Yisrael. But what happened? Amalek said, no, I can't let this happen. I can't let the nations of the world join Chal Yisrael. I can't let Hashem connect to the world. So what they do? They suicidally attacked Klai Yisrael. It was insane. Who would attack Klai Yisrael? Hashem just took them out of Israel and performed the Ten Makos. He just did Kriyas Yamsuf. Who would attack Klai Yisrael? Amalek. Why? Because their very identity represents disconnecting us from Hashem. So they can't let us all connect to Hashem. So what did they do? They attacked Klai Yisrael. Oh, it was suicidal? Of course it was. They knew they were going to basically be destroyed. They knew almost all of them would die. And almost all of them did die. But what happened? As the Pesukim say, some people of Klai died. What did Amalek reveal? That, oh, Klai is not perfect. They're still mortal. They're still able to be wounded and perhaps even destroyed. And they cooled the flames, that inspiration, that fire of the entire world flocking towards Ma'an Torah, flocking towards Har Sinai, not anymore. The nations of the world said, oh, Klai Yisrael could be beaten. They could be wounded. And they all backed out. And Amalek succeeded. Because Amalek represents the disconnection of anything higher, anything spiritual to the physical world. And that's why the Bali Machshava say that if you look at the word Amalek, what does it say? Amal Kuf. The work of the monkey. Why? Because evolutionists, the evolutionist philosophy is that we are just physical beings. We're just monkeys. We're just developed monkeys. We're animals. We don't have a spirit. We don't have an neshama. There's nothing higher. There's nothing spiritual. There's no real purpose. The entire world is meaningless. We're just a random accident. And we're not connected to anything higher. And Amalek represents that ideology that we're just a bunch of monkeys. Anul Kuf, the work of the monkey. But there's a really fundamental next step. And that is that Amalek and Esav represent disconnecting the head from the body. Remember we mentioned just a couple minutes ago the idea of the head connecting down to the body. How the Vilna Gon said Melech represents the head, the Moach, the brain, connecting down to the lave, 
to the kaveh, to the liver. Representing the flow from the higher to lower, the connection from the head to the body. But what does Esav and Amalek represent? Disconnecting the head from the body. So what does this mean? Where was Esav buried? Just think about it for a minute. Where was Esav buried? It's a trick question. He was buried in two places. His head was buried in one place, his body in another. Where was his head buried? Maris Hamachpelah. How do we know? The Gemara in Sota that Yud Gimel Amin Aleph says as follows. It says that on the day that Yaakov died, Esav challenged the Shvatim. He claimed that he had the right to be buried in Maris Hamachpelah. And that he was the firstborn. He went right back to that claim. So what did the Shvatim do? They had Naphtali, who was the fastest. They sent him down to Mitzrayim to get the deed to Maris Hamachpelah. But Yaakov's grandson, he was deaf, so he had no idea what's going on. He sees Esav making a whole tumult, and he says, what's this going on? You're disrespecting my grandfather, you're disrespecting Yaakov, he's supposed to be buried now. So what does he do? He went and he whacked off Esav's head, and Esav's head fell into Mar Samachpelah. So the simple understanding of this Gemara is that, yeah, Esav's head fell into Mar Samachpelah, and then Yaakov was buried, everything turned out great. But the deeper understanding is that Esav represented cutting off the head from the body, disconnecting the spiritual, the higher, from the physical, from the body. According to Esav, it's very possible Hashem exists. It's very possible spiritual worlds exist. But they have nothing to do with the physical body. Esav's head was great, was fine. But he disconnected it from the body. He disconnected the higher from the lower. And that's why Esav's head was buried in Mars but where was Esav's body buried? Nowhere near there. And what does Amalek mean? What is... Well, think of it this way. Think of a form of Shechita that sounds very much like Amalek. What sounds like Amalek? Melika. Melika, where you cut off the head of the bird. Where the Kohen uses his thumb to cut off the head of the bird. Why? Because Amalek represents cutting off the head from the body. That Esav and Amalek represent disconnecting the physical from the spiritual. That the head has nothing to do with the body. That Hashem has nothing to do with the world. That there is no neshama connected to the body. And now we can finally understand why Esav sold the Bechor. Because the Bechor is a spiritual inheritance. It's being rooted in the higher world. It's connecting to Hashem. Esav denied that. He says there is no connection to the spiritual world. We are disconnected from anything higher. So why would I need the Bechor? So he sold it away. But why specifically after Avram died? Can you think of it? Why, why specifically after Avram died? Because when you're rooted in the spiritual, when you're like Yaakov, death is non-existent. Remember we explained in the second shear that when you realize that you're a neshama, there's no such thing as death. When you die, it just means that you're leaving your body. You're an eternal being, you're a neshama, you're a soul, you never die. When you believe that you're just a physical being, you're mortal. You are going to die. There is an end. And the moment you die, you cease to exist. So in Esau's perspective, when he got back from Avraham's Leviah, he had just experienced the depression of the realization that it's all going to end, that he's going to die, that this is all meaningless, Hakol Hevel, that we're just physical, mortal beings. And what was his response? I'm going to get rid of this Bechor. I don't need the Bechor. The Bechor is a spiritual inheritance, but I am not a spiritual being. I'm a physical being, and I have no shaykhus to a spiritual inheritance. But take this step further. What does Rashi say? That the Bechor was for Esau's grandchildren to do the Avodah, to connect with Hashem. But if you think that the moment you die, you cease to exist, that everything ends, do you really care about your children? Do you really care what your children are going to do? You're not going to be there. You're, you're just going to cease to exist completely. But Yaakov Avinu Lomes, Yaakov Lomes, why? Because Yaakov lives on through his children. His children are an extension of him. Because when you're rooted in the spiritual, you don't cease to exist when you die. What you built in this world continues on after you die. And therefore, Esau, who thinks he's just a physical being, there is nothing higher, there is nothing more fundamental or important. What does he sell the Bechor for? What does he sell the spiritual inheritance for? For lentils. For food. For physical enjoyment. For a fleeting physical meal. 
he sells an eternal spiritual inheritance. Because when you believe that there is only physical, that there is nothing higher, then all you care about is the fleeting moment. The now, the physical, the enjoyment, the pleasure, but nothing meaningful, nothing purposeful, nothing higher, nothing spiritual. And that's why the Gemara in Baba Basra, the Tez Zayn says that on that day, Esau committed five Averos. And two of those Averos were one, belittling and selling the Bechor, and two, denying Hashem's connection to the world. Kofar Be'ikr. What's the Svar? Because these two are connected. When you believe that Hashem is not connected to the world, of course you're going to sell the Bechor, because there's no point. And now we can understand that the machlokas between Yaakov and Esau are not over the spiritual versus the physical. But rather, Yaakov values the physical in as much as it reflects the spiritual. That the ikr is the spiritual, the neshama, and the tafel is the physical, the body, and the physical is meant to reflect the spiritual. And in doing so, the tafel becomes part of the ikr. The ikr uplifts the tafel, the body becomes spiritual because it becomes a reflection of the spiritual. But Asaph says, I, all I care about is the physical. I'm a hedonist. I want to enjoy the physical world. I want to enjoy the now. I want to just you know, take advantage of the physical pleasure of the moment. But he does admit that I need the spiritual. But why? He just wants the animation of the spirit. He just wants the, the life source of the animation of the body. Because as long as I'm alive, I can enjoy my body. So all Asaph cares about is the life force of the spirit, but not the wisdom, not the principles, not morality, not purpose, not anything higher, just animation. But our job is to be like Yaakov, to use the physical to reflect the spiritual, to connect ourselves to a higher source, to make the tafel reflect the ikr, but to uplift the tafel. When the body reflects the neshama, the body becomes uplifted. But the real key in life is to live a life of purpose, a higher purpose. To ask yourself, why do I do what I do? If you have a why to the things you do, you're a very thoughtful person. Ask yourself, why do I eat the things I eat? Why do I sleep the amount that I sleep? Why do I talk about the things that I talk about? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I have the type of friends that I do? What am I really doing in life? What's your ikr? What's the main purpose of your life? Why are you here? Why are you living? What are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to become in life? And then the tafel is that which enables the ikr. The body enables the neshama. Food enables the body. Sleep enables the body. You have to build the hierarchy. Realize what's really important in life. And what's just fleeting. What's eternal, what's spiritual, what's meaningful, what's purpose, what's higher, and what's just fleeting in the moment. What's just physical? Your body is going to deteriorate. Your neshama will never. Your job in life is to recreate a proper hierarchy of ikr and tafel, and to have the tafel enable and bring out the potential of the ikr. You have so much potential. You have no idea how much potential you have. But you have to figure out a way of starting to actualize that potential. Not to live in theory, but to live in actual. To grow, to become, to learn, to develop. To build your midos, to build your relationships. To start really experiencing a deeper connection with Hashem. To see the world in a deeper way. The purpose of these shirim are not only to help you see the world and to think in a higher way, but the real goal is to live a greater life. To live a higher life, a purposeful life, a spiritual life. And as with Hashem, we're going to continue to build deeper and deeper perspectives in life. And in our next year, we're going to talk about an extremely important principle, the principle of code.